Today's episode of Dungeon Crawlers Radio is brought to you by Gamers Inn, your one-stop location for all your gaming needs. Located in Lehigh City, Utah, their fun and friendly staff will be more than happy to answer any of your gaming needs. Just remember, Gamers Inn, it's where adventures begin. Broadcasting live from the DCR studio. Oh, yeah! The Geek Revolution starts here. Excellent! Get ready for the number one hit geek radio show out there. Well, it is impressive, isn't it? Because it's time for Dungeon Crawlers Radio. And welcome to another exciting episode of Dungeon Crawlers Radio. This is Daniel here. Scott and McKay are not here right now. They are off finding, you know, a, a Snorlax and the mythical Mewtwo on Pokemon Go. Yep, that's right. They're out there running around trying to f- capture those things. Yeah, whatever. Whatever floats their boat. You know, maybe Scott will find a Slimer. No, just kidding. Just kidding. I know Slimer is not in Pokemon Go. Anyways, we have a fantastic show tonight. We have author... John Land and Heather Graham here on the show to talk about their new book, The Rising. Fantastic, fantastic book. But I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to let them tell you about this book because they do a far, far more fantastic job telling you about this book than I can. So with that said, let's jump into this interview. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. You We have... Authors Heather Graham and John Land, which are, in their own respects, both New York Times best-selling authors, which have come together to collaborate on this amazing story called The Risings. What made you two decide to come together to write the story? Um, do you know, I guess somewhere along the line, we just started talking about it, uh, possibly doing something together. We met years ago, uh, like 12 or 13 years ago, at the uh, very first meeting of international thriller writers which took place at the Biltmore Hotel out in Arizona. And it was a really great conference and lots of fun because it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. So everybody pretty much so spent almost the entire time together and became really good friends. Um, Lots of people sold things because the editors and agents were there and all kinds of good things went on. Uh, Thriller Writers is still continuing. Uh, We've been good friends since then. And we had talked about doing something and uh, um, John is actually with a, a publisher that I love. I love my own publisher, but I've always loved this publisher, too. Um, <clears throat> and one of his editors has a, a true love for NASA and everything that NASA has done. Wound up going out with him for a couple of trips to the Goddard Space Center. And they wanted to do a lot of books in conjunction with NASA to kind of get the word out there, you know, that they are warm and friendly and that they would like young people to know about them, despite the many, many budget cuts they've had. So they were looking for science fiction, uh, more for young people, and based on uh, based on real science, uh, which I guess the best of <laughs> science fiction always has been based on some kind of real science. So we were at a lunch together, and this came up, and it was it was something. I'm, I'm my main publisher where my thrillers are published 
uh, is a wonderful company, HarperCollins, Mira, and, but I'm under contract with them for a certain kind of book. So we had to be very careful about what we did. And doing sci-fi, um, kind of geared towards young adult, was the perfect vehicle. And the thing was, it was we wanted to do something different also, something that wouldn't conflict. It would be something that was out of the box. And the idea of doing a book that was YA, that would feature kids, but in an adult setting. And some people call that new adult. It's the Hunger Games. It's the Divergent series. It's the Maze Runner series. It's City of uh, Mortal Instruments, City of Bones. Mm -hmm. This is the tradition that we were following. And since neither of us had ever done it, it was working together. Let's do something that neither of us have ever done before. So given that desire and the NASA tie-in, because... Here was the, the, what you find today. NASA, to a great extent, helped define modern-day America. Yeah. Winning the space race against the Russians. They beat us into space a little bit with Sputnik, but then we went around the Earth, we went to the moon. NASA was the defining moment in American history. But if you go into an elementary school today and ask a fourth or fifth grader what NASA is, they won't know. So what we were offering, what we wanted to do, was perfectly timed for what NASA was looking for, and that became the rising. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree. You know, when it comes to NASA, it was something... I, I remember going to school, watching sure. the shuttle launches. My kids have no clue. I mean, it, it's it's interesting that they don't have that knowledge. So that, this is kind of a, a cool tie-in for that. So can you tell us a little bit about the book and the story beyond what you've just mentioned with your tie-in? Picture two, uh, two high school seniors are all that stand between the world and total annihilation. Oh, we're doomed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. No, you not go. with these teenagers. Yes, yes. With these teenagers, we have a chance. Of okay. Alex, Alex is your kind of typical, typical high school senior who happens to be very good at sports. Football means a tremendous amount to him. He's he wants to go somewhere where he's going to play football. He's adopted. He knows it. His name is Alex Chin. He was adopted by a Chinese couple when he was an infant. He adores his parents. His parents adore him. Um, but he's kind of one-track mind as far as getting places. And because he is so focused on his football, he has a tutor who is Samantha. Samantha, or Sam, is entirely the opposite. She's incredibly focused on getting to a <clears throat> the best academic school that she can. Uh, she's already an intern at NASA in California at the Ames Center, and um, she's his tutor. She's always kind of had a crush on him, but a very distant thing, kind of like, you know, someone might have a, you know, like a, a crush on a movie star in the aspect of not really wanting anything, but just kind of like, wow, what a really good-looking person. He is her friend, of course, but he's also dating one of her friends, so that's kind of the situation. That's the high school begins. stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then at the pretty much so at the very beginning of the book, something happens that turns everything in Alex's life into a lie and throws Samantha into a situation where she's seen absolutely terrible things. And therefore, uh, when it comes time to either kind of like run away or stand up with him and try to help him, she's going to. And it's not so much because she's had so much admiration for him or had this little crush on him, but because she knows what's happening knows how badly he's going to need help, and she really just can't turn away. And all, and the thing is, Dan, all great science fiction, from Asimov to Robert Heinlein to Harlan Ellison, and is metaphor. 
Yeah. And the idea that Alex is a Caucasian boy adopted by Chinese parents becomes a kind of metaphor. Little did we know how accurate the metaphor would become with the xenophobic world that we now live in when we're talking about Muslim registries and banning people at the border and building walls. So much of what we wanted to do in this book has become ultra-relevant. Yeah. But where the metaphor really extends, save us from destruction. That can only, that the only thing that can save us from the end of our civilization as we know it today. But he doesn't know what it is. So he's the ultimate, here's the point I was getting at, he's the ultimate illegal, has to come to grips with, with his identity. So I think all great science fiction stories and all great young adult stories are also about the search for identity. And Alex, in the course of this, has to accept the mantle of heroism, um, not because he wants to at first, but because he has to. And then there's a terrible, tra- he witnesses or is party to a terrible tragedy to the people he loves the most in the world who've been protecting him for 18 years, but they can't protect him anymore from what's happening. And that forces him um, to make a choice. And the choice he makes determines this, the course of history. Well, it's wow. a kind of wow. journey, too. They wind up going on quite uh, in a small space. They go on quite a journey. Um, and I think part of it, too, is the uh, we have looked at aliens as being quite a bit like uh, anyone else. If you look at world history at various times, we have been friends uh, with various other countries, and at various times we have been at war with other countries. Yes. So we see um, the aliens, to me, I do believe some people or creatures or aliens, whatever one may call them, be they humanoid or whatever, some would be very good, would want to share information, share science, perhaps um, come down and learn from us or give it to us, whereas others might want nothing other than to uh, take over, take over for minerals, take over for land, farming, food, um, of the various reasons, maybe, you know, God knows, maybe they're, you know, you could have Morlocks out there, so you never know. They might even be looking at us as food, but there could be good, there could be bad, and it could all be out there. And if there is such a thing as a, a wormhole, string theory, if these things do indeed exist, then they could certainly be coming from many places. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, Dan, because you never know what you have with a book until it comes out and you start reading what people are saying about it, what reviews are saying. And I knew we had something um, special when uh, one of the reviews in Booklist uh, compared us to Robert Heinlein. And the last line of the review is something to the effect of, at its heart, this is a sci-fi, this is a 1950s sci-fi mashup. And it was basically getting to the, what I grew up on as a kid was, were movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still, yeah. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Them. And this is more the tradition there's not, although the great thing about it, we're Heather and I doing sci-fi, is that neither one of us knows a lot about science. So you're not overburdened with technology. You're not, mm-hmm. you only learn in the rising what you need to know to propel the story forward. You need to know what Alex knows. And there are characters who, who show up from time to time to explain things. But there are not page after page after page of how things work and, 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 and how wormholes, the, you know, we can do it in a paragraph because if we try to do it any more than that, we're, gonna, we're not going to understand. Yeah. So I think, so the point I'm getting at is the best people to write something this complicated are people who know how to, who want to keep it simple for ourselves. Yeah. 
You know, and that keeps because we don't want. And here's the problem with with a lot of sci-fi for me: the technology overwhelms the story. Here, the story, the technology is woven into the story. What happened to Alex eighteen years before? How wormholes function? Um, how all the things that are important technologically in the book work? They function as plot points. They don't just. They don't stand on their own. Because ultimately, ultimately, this is a story about Alex and Sam. This is a story about two high school seniors who have their whole lives plotted, who realize their lives in one desperate moment have changed forever. And well, it, it, it always makes me think of the John Lennon saying, "Life is what happens when we're busy making plans." Yes, so yeah. They've got they've got everything all set, and then it, it just all goes right to hell, and uh, and in a very specific and life threatening uh, way at all points. And so it's also it's about survival, about doing all the things. Talk one has about to do to have, Tether. Talk about Sam and and what she's willing to do for Alex and, and why she does it. I mean, you know, because. You know, she, she's willing to throw everything away, you know, to, to, to help him. I think I think Sam is, hopefully I think Sam is what the majority of us are. It's not that, like Don was saying, not too many people wake up and go, I'm going to go be a hero today. Yeah. But sometimes you find people, um, or it's almost like if you look at the disasters that hit our country after, after Katrina, you know, you have a certain element that's going to go and loot and do bad things. But you have this wonderful section that's going to go out and risk their own lives to uh, get people off of roofs, to get water to those who have nothing. I mean, there's always going to be the people who step forward. And they really do step forward and just do the right thing. And I think an awful lot of that is inside, you know, hopefully inside the majority of us where, you know, we will step up when when you're called upon. But I think with uh, Sam, too, she's known him. She's known his family, and she has to witness really terrible things happen. And that having taken place, there's no way she would leave a friend. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, there's there's no way she would leave a starving dog outside, and there is no way she would let her friend have to go through all of this by himself with no help or support. And, and you know what? The, 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 she steps up, accepts the responsibility, because on the night in question, Alex has lost everything. Yeah. He has nothing. You know, the, the people closest to him are gone. They, they've, they've been sacrificed. You know, they, they've been killed. So all he has left is Sam. And when he's in the most trouble, when he's escaped the hospital where, they've come, where, where, where the villains have come in search of him. Because remember, if he survives, they lose. Mm. Whatever he's hiding, and he has no knowledge of what the secret is that he's been entrusted with that's the only thing that can save the world. If he survives, they lose, so they must find him. And, and he says to Sam at one point, go home. You, you, you don't have to do this. But she can't do that. She's never missed a day. In, she's probably one of these honor students who's never missed a day in school in her, in her life. So it's a good thing this happens on a weekend. Yeah. Because at least she can go back to school on Monday. Of course, we're going to find out in the sequel that she doesn't. Um, but I, I think the most powerful moments in this book are the moments between the two of them and how they end up working together to try to figure out the secret that Alex has been entrusted with. Well, 
I mean, remember at first, Alex doesn't even know he has it. I mean, no. says, Alex, why in God's name would anybody want to do this to me? Yes. He has, he has no comprehension. Yeah. He doesn't know he's an alien. Yeah, that's interesting. He so, doesn't know. So how did you guys go about working and writing this story since, I mean, did one person take on Sam, the other one take on Alex, or was it more you take this chapter, you take that chapter type situation? A back and forth. A back and forth. One person would have it and write so far. The next person would have it if they, you know, wanted to make any type, you know, polishing any type of major changes. We'd have a phone call um, that it would go back. It just went back and forth between us over, you know, a period of months until until we reached the end. And, you know, it's an interesting question, Dan, because it makes me think that that's another alternative. There are other collaborators who do exactly what you said. Yeah. One will write one POV, another will write another. But that seems to suggest to me that they don't know the characters. They know one character as well, but not the other. Well, how then do you handle the scenes where the characters are together? Yeah. Because you must know both characters. And I think so much of this book was born at that initial lunch we had where we figured out what it was we were going to do. Uh, and we had an idea of who these kids were. We had an idea of what they stood for. And the thing that made the book, I've never said it quite this way before, why I think the collaboration between us worked so well was not only did we know where the book was going, but we knew who the people were. Hmm. We knew who these kids were. And that allowed us not, you know, we didn't have to make a lot of changes along the way. I, I would send a, a chunk of pages, Heather would polish them, write more, and then send it back to me. I was, you know, and I was writing on at the time, and we were just fitting everything together, but we knew where we were going. But, and also important, I think, that, that to both of us is it doesn't matter what you're writing in, whether it's sci-fi, mystery, um, romance, and it does not matter what you're writing in. You have to write about characters that people either fall in love with or love to hate or find to be very real, uh, can identify with. And that's key because there is a romantic element to this that transcends what we would call, you know, this this isn't a traditional romance. It's not, it starts off as what I would call something even more important. It starts off as a friendship. It starts off as, as a kind of thing where, where they're sacrificing, Sam is sacrificing for Alex and ultimately Alex will save Sam. And so there, there's a wonderful back and forth. Um, but if we had, re if the romance had been realized in the first book of what is intended to be a series, well, then what? Where's the suspense going forward? So, to me, friendship is more important, or at least the perfect precursor to romance. So the scenes, con when you look at the a scene that I love in the book, where when Alex is in the hospital and, and Sam shows up on the pretext of tutoring him. On a Saturday. Oh, she is supposed to be tutoring. She is tutoring yeah. him, but I think she also wants to see him because she likes him. She, she Maybe she, she still has a crush on him, but she also understands things that this is a kid who's deeper and has more going for him in his head than he accepts himself. Alex doesn't have a lot of confidence in his own intelligence um, because he hasn't. he's never needed it. Yeah. Football has and always... Sam does believe in him. Yeah. And, yes. And, and I think that's, that's a very important thing. Sam believes in him. Even before everything goes bad, before the world changes, and when he, again, there's a key moment when he gets out of the hospital, I started to allude to before, where she's the one he calls. He doesn't call his girlfriend. He calls Sam to come pick him up and take him home after, you know, not realizing that she already knows something terrible has happened at his home, and she has to do it. She can't, knowing what she knows about what he's going to find in his house... 
she has to go tell him and she has to help him as much as she can. And that to me is the definition of heroism. The definition of heroism is sacrifice. Yeah. It's being willing to be bigger is try to be bigger than yourself and think higher and, and, and think in that way. And ultimately as the series continues, their relationship will continue to define the series. Well, I also think too, sometimes when you're speaking with firefighters, uh, police, military uh, personnel, people who go into really uh, dangerous situations, you know, you, you can say, oh my God, weren't you scared? And it's kind of like, hell yes, you're scared. You know, and that's kind of the you know, definition of courage. It's not that, oh, I'm not afraid of anything. Uh, courage is taking action despite any type of fear yeah. or reticence that you may feel. Wow. These, these characters sound fascinating. Well, thank you. We hope so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I love how you have the balance of these two characters. One that's not so sure of himself. A Sam that is confident in herself and she believes in Alex that kind of bolster him up. And as well as she's willing to step up to the plate and face, you know, this situation. I mean, you're, that, that's courageous uh, beyond belief. But it also kind of draws a really strong female character, which, you know, back in the 50s, we didn't really see that. It was a damsel in distress, but this isn't, this is yeah. kind of the opposite. He's kind of the damsel in distress that needs uh -huh. the help. I think the, the best wow, is when you save each other. You know, I mean, it's not, uh, you know, it's not so much like uh, well, both people support one another. Yeah. I think creates the strongest friendships and the strongest uh, romances when you get to that. And the other thing we, we started to allude to before is Sam is already interning at NASA's Ames Institute for Astrobiology. The reason why we decided to set this book in Northern California, San Francisco Bay Area, is because that's where Ames is, and that's where the technology that would help us learn, I say us because the reader needs to know, yeah. just as the characters need to know. She works for an expert in, uh, in what Alex basically is, someone who had his own experiences with a, with a tragedy 18 years before. And what Sam has uncovered, this is a great moment early in the story, 18 years before, when Alex was first brought here um, as the guardian of our race, not knowing it. There were a series of events that happened, a series of cataclysms, a pattern of events. Mm -hmm. if, what Sam has uncovered, independent of all these brilliant scientists of NASA, is that the pattern has come back. The pattern is repeating itself. And what that does, Dan, is it sets up a ticking clock. So her boss at Ames, at NASA, now is the link between the past, the present, and will ultimately ex figure out a lot of what's going on. We see these characters in all great stories of science fiction. The, the mad scientist who explains everything, the good scientist, uh, usually with a, an Einstein lookalike with a nest of curly hair, yeah. and drawing on a blackboard. Uh, we actually saw this in the Michael Rennie version of, of uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. And that's it. So, so Sam not only is a savior character, and I love what you said about Alex as the damsel in distress. That's a, that's a great allusion to, to, to what we were doing, not realizing it. But she's also the link to the scientific explanation for okay. what's happening. And that's crucial because if we don't explain it in a way that everybody from a fourth or fifth grader on can understand it, then the book fails. Well, I mean, I, I am personally... 
not that great with technology and, and I find it and I and I if you do love technology then there are wonderful books for you but I also find myself annoyed if somebody thinks I'm supposed to know um, a great deal of technology and I don't you know I want a story to move forward yeah so that's you know one of the things that we did when we needed to have things checked out that really did need to be right we're very lucky we had friends who could check them out for us you know who were working in this and I think one of my favorite things that got us going on this is that our, our really brilliant, wonderful editor took a, a number of us to Goddard uh, Space Flight Center, and we were able to spend two days there and with the scientists. And I think my very favorite thing that we did the whole time was that we sat before the scientists and we were able to ask some questions. And we asked them the question of, what would you do if you received the call, if the signal came to you that the aliens were out there? Would you feel that, yes, yes, we love you, we want to embrace you, we want to find out what you have for us? Or would you think, oh, my God, they're coming, let's get the military out immediately? So we went through several of them, and a couple of them thought, oh, my God, yeah, you better get that military going just in case. And there were a couple that, you know, I would think if they came here, if they're looking for us, that they would be with fascination, you know, that they want to find out more about us. So they're go all going in that direction. And they finally came to the one young man, and he said, I would have to, you know, call someone else to the phone or the radio because the answer to this is above my pay grade. So I think that that would be kind of a situation that many of us might find ourselves in because are they, you know, it's like, do these people want to be friends? Do they not want to be friends? And we probably do have both of them out there. Yeah. And, you know, I had a thing, you know, because, you know, we, I wrote a scene imagining what a futuristic computer chip would look like. Now, not being a scientist, not thinking ahead 100,000 to a million years, I figured, well, it's just going to be something you... It'll be a little smaller, but you just kind of like plug it into something. And one of the technology experts read it and said, you realize this is nothing like what's going to exist in 100,000 years or a million years. And I said, well, what would it be? And he sent me a link to an article you written about what computer chips will be like in the future. And I went, oh, <laughs> you know, and that's the kind of thing. It, you know, it, it's kind of like the pattern I mentioned before. I had done the pattern one way, and he said, no, if this were the way you're describing it, what the pattern would be would be drastic spikes in the discharge of electromagnetic radiation, and then he explained why. So when you read this book, even though you only get enough technology that you need, you don't get more than you need, mm -hmm. at least you know the technology you're getting has been reasonably vetted by people who know we, we had an event last night and someone asked me to explain what a wormhole is well it, it was fairly easy to explain what it is what i never could explain and, and don't bother trying to explain in the book is how you would actually create one yeah so you would need such massive amounts of power um you would basically need the power of a super collider which is actually what one of the things they're doing a lot of some of the research, by the way, that we did. A lot of what we're talking about in this book with 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 stuff are experiments they are doing at CERN and at other locations. Even Lawrence Livermore is doing some, but mostly at CERN with the super collider there, where they're dealing with antimatter yeah. and matter and stuff like that. They where they're trying to figure out the technology to create something like a wormhole. So it's not that. We're, we're dealing in something that's incredible. We're dealing in something that's ahead of its time. We're dealing in something that's coming from an, a race that's a million years advanced from us, that's coming back 
um, and only Alex can stop them. And if you look at us, you know, as we as human beings, some of us are very good at art, some of us are incredible at music, some of us are wonderful at math, and some of us are wonderful at science. And therefore, I would think that if you do have any type of a humanoid population, um, which to me, having from our uh, days at Goddard, I really don't believe that there is anything in our solar system other than, which they believe they have found, bacteria on Mars. But there are so many solar systems that are very nearly exactly like ours that you could find a planet very much so like Earth and therefore possibly um, have humanoid characters, humanoid characters that have passed us by 100,000 years. And therefore there would be, you know, artists and musicians and incredible scientists within uh, that society as well. But, you know, the other great thing that we haven't we haven't yet talked about in any interview, so you will give you a little exclusive, sure. is just like the thing I love about The Walking Dead is the zombies aren't really the worst villains. Mm. It's the people oh, who yeah. are the worst villains. And there is a human villain, and this is where we get back into the xenophobia and the metaphor we created without realizing what we were creating three years ago, four years ago, in the sense that there is someone who is committed to wiping out the aliens who have come to Earth. He has his own reasons. He believes his father was sh- years and years ago was shot down, his military jet was shot down by an alien spacecraft. So his life's ambition, this very wealthy, obsessed man's ambition, is to create this fifth column, a modern-day Nazi war party, to hunt down people like Alex, who have come here as refugees, literally, from this other world. Alex isn't the only one who's here. He also has Guardian, who brought him over. He has people who've been watching over him, who are on constant surveillance, waiting for this day to happen. And they are at con- they're in continual danger of being tracked down and, I, I, you know, the metaphor of being deported yeah. is what we're talking about here. But his villainy is probably worse, or at least as bad, as anything the aliens we see do in this he is as much an impediment or more of an impediment to Alex's ability to save civilization as um, as the aliens are. So true villain, you know, it's, it, 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 so we have not just aliens who are evil here, not just aliens who are good. We have both. Yeah. And I think if there's any overriding theme in this book, it's the same one that emerges in The Walking Dead. Beware the zombies, but really watch out for the humans. Yeah. Here, beware the aliens, but the guy you really got to worry out for, look out for is the rich guy who wants all the aliens out of the world forever when they're the only thing that can save us from the invasion that's coming. Yeah, no, I, I the thing about villains, the best villains are the ones that have a holy cause, right. so to uh, say. So, uh, um, I mean, as you're describing this villain, it kind of sounds a little bit like Lex Luthor, you know, with how much hatred he has against Superman and all the things he goes on with that. Um, and, and if this guy has money and resources, then wow, the things he can do. Exactly. And you, exactly. Ju- and you just said it, and that's another great point about resources, because the the enemies that Alex, Sam, and Alex's guardian, Rafe, who's, who's his adult Mm-hmm. father figure um what they come up against they have no resources they've got nothing yeah and they're coming up against a human army that has every gun they imaginable and they're coming up against an alien army with weapons we can't even conceive of and how are they going to and that's the 
that's great story. That's the essence of a great story. Yeah. How can they win when the odds are so stacked against them? How can they save the world from both the villains coming from without and the villains who are already working from within? And, and it's it, that's the great thing. And I think that's true also when you look at Robert Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land, or some of the movies I alluded to before, or iRobot. The, 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 the point that arises from iRobot, the classic Asimov story, is that machines have more humanity than man. Yeah, And this is kind of taking that in another direction. But the kids in this have more maturity than the adults. The, the, our two heroes are more grown up and more open-minded. It's like the young, the young really will save the world if, you know, if we let them. So there's a tremendous amount here going on that's subtext that really drives the story and takes it to a level that I think makes it even more entertaining than it would have been otherwise. I think, too, that we've been, um, I have, um, very lucky, I have five children who've, um, they're grown up now, but, you know, definitely went through high school to get to where they are now, and all kinds of wonderful friends that they have had throughout the years. So it's, uh, it's, I think it's been a lot of fun for me, because I've gotten to see just how wonderful people can be. I've gotten to see uh, boys hurt. I've gotten to see girls hurt, and I've gotten to see them all rise above something and uh, and move on in life and do wonderful things. Oh, this is just an amazing story. There's even though it's YA, it sounds super complex enough that even adults can enjoy it, but well, simple okay. enough that you know young adults and younger readers can enjoy it just and, and have fun with it. I think it's 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 YA in the sense that the heroes are young. Yeah, but. The only young characters in the story are those two characters. I mean, this is not this is putting young adults in adult situations and asking them to save the world that the adults have ruined. Yeah. So in that sense, I think it's a great story in the same way that To Kill a Mockingbird was Scout's story. Yeah. It was an adult book, but it was Scout's story. Huckleberry Finn was not a young adult book, but the hero is a young adult. I think most of the audience for a lot of the other books in this genre, starting with Hunger Games, is actually more of an adult audience, or at least equally an adult audience. Because here's the thing, Dan. Great stories resonate across the years. Great stories, if, you, if you're able to tell one, have, have universal appeal that can work from the ground up. You know, Lord of the Flies, everybody, a separate piece. These were books we all read in school that continue to resonate, but they weren't necessarily written as young adult novels. They were written as great books. And how you want to classify them is a decision that's up to each individual reader, but it doesn't disturb the enjoyment you you have while you're reading the book. We're hoping, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, In my, in my humble opinion. <laughs> if you don't mind me Yeah. So... You've already mentioned a sequel, so is there going to be more than two books? Or is this going to be a series of books? Or is it just going to be... It will be a series of books, yes. The second one coming out is Blood Moon, and it will be out... Uh, January 16th, next year! Nice. So there's plenty of time to read this and get ready for the next one. Absolutely. We don't know what the, where, the, where they... We, we didn't know where they were going to go in book two until we finished book one. And we won't know where they're going to go in book three until we finish book two, because it's organic. We don't, we don't plan. We want the series to unfold like life. You never know what's going to happen next. Yeah. yeah. Plans, but as yeah. you said earlier, life is what happens, you know, while you're busy making plans. So yes. it's, uh, it's a we, great we, line. We've, got our, we've got ourselves an outline, but it may change as we go. 
All right. Well, that's fantastic. This is exciting. The book's already out, so our listeners can go snag it now. It's on. You can go get traditional hardback, ebook, and audiobook as well. Absolutely. Oh. Any, any, we, we, we're, we're multi-dimensional in more ways than one. Nice. There's nothing more enjoyable than listening to an audiobook on a car, you know, when driving the oh, car. Because oh. um, it's just one time you can't read a book. Yeah, you know, silly me. We don't have automated cars yet, so I can't read a book while driving. <laughs> oh, I love them. We used to have to go from Florida to Massachusetts every summer, and I, I think my family would have all like consumed each other if we hadn't had great audiobooks to listen to up and down the coast yeah well and what's even more impressive now is the voice actors they have doing these books do yeah. such a fantastic job um that you're completely entertained the whole time so absolutely all right well run out grab a copy of this book you're gonna love it i mean if you, you've sat through this whole interview you're just as intrigued as i am uh, and then run out in January. You don't have to wait too long. There's book two. So that's just amazing. The Rising followed by Blood Moon. But start yes. with the Rising. So for our listeners, if they want to find you, where can they find both of you? On social media or even conventions or signings you're going to be doing soon? Oh, well, if you happen to be in the Vero Beach area, we're, we're in Vero Beach tonight. And we're in Kissimmee tomorrow. And we're in Winter Park the day after. Florida. Um, yeah, in Florida. We'll also both be at International Thriller Writers this year. Um, we will be at something called, uh, uh, I will be at something called, we'll probably be at a couple of different things too. I will be at VoucherCon. I will be at RT Book Lovers. Um, I'm blanking on things. I know we're all over the place. Uh, Book Expo of the Americas. I'll be at, uh, I'm on Twitter at John D. Land. Both of us are at very large Facebook. Now find me on, on Facebook at John Land, J-O-N, no H. Um, and also, Heather is the real Heather Graham. No, I'm the, if you're looking for the website, it's, it's the original. The original Heather, Heather Graham. Graham. Sorry. Yeah, sadly, I'm a couple years older than Roller Girl, so. Yes. <laughs> the original Heather Graham yeah. or johnlandbooks.com. All right. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for uh, having us. It's been, it's been a pleasure. So, I'm going to let you go so you can enjoy the rest of your afternoon. And, uh,. Yeah, I, I, I need now go, got to go read this book and just finish it because this sounds amazing. <laughs> Enjoy. Thank you so much. All right, we'll catch you later. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having us. Uh, bye. Bye-bye. It was such a pleasure having both John and Heather on the show. This book is just fantastic. As soon as I finished wrapping up the interview, I pulled out the book because I got a copy and I have been devouring it. It is a fantastic novel. The plot twists, everything just flows so well that you don't even realize you're being sucked into the vortex that is this amazing, amazing story. So, with that said, go out, pick up your copy, whether it's in physical form, ebook, or audiobook, you're going to love this story and what John and Heather did. So, it is available now. Run out, pick it up, and until then, we'll catch you next time.